Welcome to The Meaning of the Movie, our podcast about what matters most when it comes to the film. I am your host, Rob Stinnett, here with my co-host, Andrew Harmon. Hey, Andrew. What's up, Rob? And John Bolin is here today. John, good to have you. Hey, guys. Good to be back. Good to have you back, John. I uh, hope you had a great voyage uh, around the world. You've been uh, out to sea or uh, potentially went to space on the uh, Elon Musk rocket. None I, uh, of this is true. Not everything Andrew is saying right now is false. But John is a busy man. I wish it was that exciting. John is a busy man. He's famous. He's our famous friend. He is. He is. And since you all uh, have the uh, privilege of listening to the episode with uh, our famous friend on it, um, why don't you go ahead and jump over and just subscribe uh, to uh, the rest of our episodes. You don't really need a reason to subscribe, but go ahead uh, and do it. Maybe uh, drop us a rating or uh, give us a review. We have a couple of reviews that you all have been writing. Uh, This one is my favorite. It's our only four-star review, but... I love it. Uh, This is from a fresh hop cinema. And he said, stumbled across this podcast by chance and just finished listening to the Don't Look Up episode. Though I disagree with just about every point that they made, and I have my own podcast episode to prove it, I can't argue with the quality or the delivery of the criticism. Keep it up. Great work, fellas. I love that. Like, you don't have to agree with, like, our take on a movie, but the fact that, like, you're listening and that you have thoughts and you want to engage in the conversation, I love that. I think people come to the meaning of the movie for bad takes, but interesting takes, and that's where we specialize. Like, we may not always be right, but we'll try to be interesting. And Fresh Hop Cinema, shout out to you guys. You're doing great work. Uh, I encourage our listeners to give them a listen. All right, fellas, today we are talking about The Truman Show. I could not be any more pumped to talk about this movie. This is the type of film that I wanted to talk about when we started this podcast, a film that like plays up as an entertaining story, but there's also like a lot of meaning and a lot of layers to the onion that we can peel back. And I want to get into that, but I think like to start with the Truman show, you need to understand this was a huge deal for Jim Carrey, who was just reeling off hundred million dollar film after the next Ace Ventura, Dumb and Dumber, The Mask, these kind of the bigger than life comic films. And then all of a sudden he does Truman Show, which is not like a Jim Carrey vehicle. It's a little more dramatic and a little bit more serious. So what I'm teeing up is this. Where does the Truman Show rank in comic actors turning to dramatic roles? Like, where does that rank for you guys? I mean, I think it's pretty high on the list. I was trying to think of like other great examples of comedic actors that have done a dramatic turn. And I feel like you've got Robin Williams. I don't know, was Good Morning Vietnam his first dramatic one? So I'm saying uh, Dead Poets Society. Dead Poets Society. Real dramatic film that he jumped into. Yeah, that's probably the top of the list. Because, you know, like Good Morning Vietnam is dramatic for sure. I mean, it's about Vietnam, obviously. So it is a drama, but it's still like this is Robin Williams doing jokes the whole way through doing voices. It's kind of like if you took the genie from Aladdin and put him in the middle of Vietnam, like that's what that movie is. Sure. I'm trying to think of like other like big comedic actors who took that turn. Bill Murray in Lost in Translation is one I thought of. You've got, uh, what was Jim Jim Carell? um, Are we talking Steve Carell? Steve Carell, yeah. Steve Carell. I I actually have a list because- Yeah, let's go. You know me, you know I like lists. So here's my list of comic actors turning to dramatic roles. And as much as possible in this list, I tried to pick their first one. Like, if you look at their IMDb, this is the first one where it's like, hey, they've been a comedy guy, and now all of a sudden they're jumping into drama. So Tom Hanks in Philadelphia, like, that's a big one. Tom Hanks is doing 
Turner and Hooch, and he's doing the Burbs, and he's doing a league of their own. And then all of a sudden he does Philadelphia, which is about an AIDS case, and it's super heavy, super serious. He loses all this weight. He literally wins the Oscar for it. And this is the moment that he becomes Tom Hanks, this legendary actor. Then we have Steve Carell in Foxcatcher. Whoopi Goldberg in The Color Purple, I think is an interesting one, where she's kind of the stand-up comedian, and then all of a sudden is in Steven Spielberg's kind of epic The Color Purple. We have Bill Murray, Lost in Translation. Eddie Murphy, Dreamgirls. And then Robin Williams, Dead Poets Society, which is also directed by Peter Weir, who did The Truman Show. And so that's kind of my list. Uh, The other ones I would put in there would be Lost in Translation with Will Ferrell, or not Lost in Translation, uh, Stranger Than Fiction. Stranger Than Fiction, yeah. With Will Ferrell. There's some like charming, cute moments in it, but it's not a comedy. No, I'd agree. That movie plays straight. And and again, it's kind of like The Truman Show, in which Will Ferrell is kind of keeping it straight. He's just kind of being Will Ferrell. John, do you have a favorite on that list? You know, I'm going to go ahead and just show my cards here, but... This is one of my all-time favorite movies. I think you knew that, Rob, going into it. So this, to me, would be the top of the list. Um, Maybe just under Robin Williams and Dead Poets Society. I think that was a great case of a comic actor getting into a more serious role. And then, of course, he did several after that that were phenomenal. So I would say Dead Poets Society, Robin Williams, and this would probably rank number two for me. Yeah, and if you Google this question, like probably the first one that turns up is Robin Williams and Goodwill Hunting. That's the one that he wins the Oscar. That's the one he's sort of known for. And it's an incredible performance. But for me, what stood out was like when he did Dead Poet Society, where all of a sudden, I think it has a lot in common with the Truman Show and the fact like he's still kind of funny. He's still doing voices. But that movie, Dead Poet Society, is playing it pretty straight. It's playing it pretty much like he's this inspiring guy. And there's a lot of heavy stuff that happens in the film. Does Dead Poet Society come after or before Goodwill Hunting? It comes before. It's 1989 and Goodwill Hunting's 1997. Yeah, I was going to say, it's like a lot late. I know that because he had a beard in Goodwill Hunting. And so I'm like, oh, he's older now. (laughs) Which means he's older. (laughs) The other one that we haven't uh, mentioned would be Adam Sandler in Uncut Gems. Yes, great one. I don't know, though, that Jim Carrey stayed in that dramatic actor category after this film. I think he was there, but I think he... He moved back into the, I think he felt more comfortable in his skin, or at least audiences embraced him more as a comic, whereas some of the other actors you're mentioning, I think they transitioned to a more dramatic actor. I don't know that happened with Jim Carrey. Well, Robin Williams is, again, probably the best comp, because he would go and do another big, broad comedy, and then he'd do something really dramatic like Insomnia or One Hour Photo, and Jim Carrey would do these comedies but then he also did Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. Oh, that's right. Yeah. A movie that we will for sure do on this podcast. Um, he did this weird movie called 23. Where <laughs> I, don't, oh, I don't think dude. I've seen it. It's like a Joel Schumacher, but it's like creepy and weird. And so he, do, he tries to do these like dramatic movies. I feel like if we're going to rate like the best turn, I would probably say this is like number two. Like if we're just looking at the, like the first movie that these comedic actors used to sort of turn into dramatic acting. Um, I think Dead Poet Society is for sure number one, right? Robin Williams. But if I'm thinking about like actors who really made the turn it and make it stick, I think I would put like Steve Carell pretty close to actually the top of that list with the work that he's put in after he did Foxcatcher with um, the stuff he's been doing with Adam McKay with like the big short, which is 
comedic in a way, but not really. It plays like a drama, or Vice plays like a drama. Right, and he, he also did Beautiful Boy, which is a movie about a dad dealing with a son being addicted to meth. He's done some pretty serious roles. Right, and long before Foxcatcher, he did Little Miss Sunshine. He, yeah, he I that almost put with. that on my list. It's a, it's a funny one, right? Because he plays it really, really straight. Like, he's not Michael Scott. He's not the 40-year-old virgin. He's really, like, a straight-up dude. But, like, the movie's really funny and quirky. Another movie I'd love to talk about on this podcast, but, like... I I couldn't decide where Foxcatcher is just straight up like John Dupont. There's like no. <laughs> the most depressing. Heavy it's movie so it's so depressing. <laughs> it's like, do you want to be sad and then just get sadder? Welcome to Foxcatcher. His performance <laughs> in Fox Foxcatcher, though, was so dramatically different than what you were used to that it just made a jolting impression. It's true. So I feel like I would put Jim Carrey as far as like actors who made a dramatic turn probably as like my number three. Robin Williams, Steve Carell, Jim Carrey. But, but as where far does as Tom like, Hanks fit in this discussion? I feel like Tom Hanks for me was never like a full time comedian. He was like a charming actor that was in funnier things, but he wasn't someone that you'd be like, oh, that's like a comedian. So I don't know that he kind of makes the list for me. Yeah, I would. In the same I would, way. I would sort of agree with Andrew on that, Rob. I think Tom Hanks was. You think of his, some of his earlier movies, they, they were fun and funny, and that, maybe that's the word charming, but not fully comedic. I don't think, I would never put him as a, even a stand-up kind of a comedy guy, where the other ones are all pretty traditional comics. Right, like he's not Bill Murray, he's not like Jim Carrey, where he's just like, all the jokes are coming from him, he's more the straight man. You know who he reminds me of, actually, uh, just in terms of career, is like Bradley Cooper, Bradley Cooper is in Wedding Crashers. He's in Hangover. He's kind of in these broad comedies. And then all of a sudden he does American Sniper and you're like, oh, wow, this just got real. For sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, let's dive into uh, The Truman Show. Let's talk about this movie that we're here to talk about. Rob, I know you you love this movie. How did you feel the first time you watched it? And then how did you feel watching it this time around? What was interesting for me with this movie is it comes out summer of 1998 and so it's really when I first started getting into movies that were like not just action movies, not just broad sci-fis, but I was more interested in movies that were telling a story that made me think. And so The Truman Show, I was just like, I love this movie because it's fun and funny and quirky, but it's interested in something more. And for me, watching it again, I think the word that I felt was prophetic. Like, it was incredible, like, how much... And I want to get to this a bunch in the podcast, but how much this like talked about the world that we live in today and how much this kind of like foreshadowed what life will be like in 2022. So when you watched it now, were you like feeling that like prophetic nature of it? Absolutely. I mean, you have to understand this movie comes out in 1998, right? So this is before reality TV really hit. This is before Bachelor. This is before Survivor. This before anything else like that. And so I always thought this reality TV idea was prescient. But now, like, we live in the age of YouTubers, Instagram influencers, TikTok, where really, like, so much of our entertainment is just watching people live their life. Like, that is what entertainment is. And that's what Truman Show is. It's like, there's there's storylines and arcs that they're kind of, like, building in a way Bachelor or Survivor does. But in the same way, what the charm is and what locks you in is, oh, this is a real person in a real situation. And that's what was so interesting to me. Um, I also thought what was interesting was the way that everything was marketed just to Truman. There were radio episodes just for him. 
like everything was like catered to him personally. And that also made me think of like us getting our own Netflix queue, our own Spotify list, the way that ad managers really go and try to do advertising that just fits us and the way the world is catered around us. I think the Truman Show delved into that as well. When I was watching it this time around, I was, you know, seeing all the like clever ways that they were trying to like subliminally keep him in line. But I didn't quite connect it with like, honestly, how advertising is doing the same thing to us now with the with the micro targeting and the, the algorithms that suggest everything that they want you to buy. Whereas in the Truman Show, they're trying to keep him sedated, basically. Right. It's like that. The, the social dilemma film, that documentary, you know, yep. it's all these algorithms, uh, algorithms and AI that's like keeping us clicking, keeping us scrolling, keeping us engaged, like really customizing the ad perfectly for us. Like it, that's an interesting, I didn't even think of that when I was watching it this time around, but that's certainly part of the story. It really came out like when he turns on the radio broadcast and that radio broadcast is just for him. It's like he thinks everyone else is listening to it, but reality is this is a message custom tailored just for him. And that's where we're going, right? Not to be like old man Stennett, but like, that's where we're going is like, my kids are going to get so many things that are just customly built for them. And we're all Truman in a way. And so that's what really jumped out to me of an interesting idea in this movie that hadn't come first couple of times I watched it. That is fascinating. How about you, John? How do you feel about it when you're watching it? Well, the theme of this movie is like, so close to my life story, just as far as the, you were in a reality TV show and you didn't know it much, for the first three yes, years of your exactly. life. Exactly. No, I'm John, just, we've, we've never talked about this. This is yeah, this is fascinating. It's, it's going to come out now. Um, no, I, I mean, for me, like some of my favorite themed films would be along the lines of a Truman show, secret life of Walter Mitty, big fish. I love big fish These stories that say there's something else out there. There's a bigger story that, that you're living. I mean, even, you know, for me, I, I look at the symbolism and things like Lord of the Rings, et cetera. But, but for this movie, it's saying, Hey, there's more than meets the eye to your life. And, and what you're experiencing is not the, the bigger picture. It's not the full picture kind of a thing. So I remember really liking this movie when it first came out. But for me, this movie was more meaningful now than it has been. In, and I've probably seen it a dozen times. Um, but what was but, it? What jumped out to you this time where it was like, oh, man, this is like in my brain. Get out of my brain, Truman Show. I'm just rooting for this guy. Like I'm rooting for Truman. though, And I know how it ends. Of course, I know how it ends. But the whole time, I'm thinking this is us like this is my kids, my wife, my friends like we live in this situation where we like I don't know what it is if it's just uh, life around us like creates these narratives that keep us tied in, you know, everything. And, and there's so many cases of that. I, I th I'm thinking right now of walking into the travel agency and the posters on the wall, you know, are like, this could happen to you and a lightning bolt going through an airplane. It's incredible. It's such a great I mean, joke. It's that, that whole idea that you, not only is it not a good idea to venture beyond, but it's dangerous. Like anything beyond this is dangerous. And from the time he was young, I mean, that the scene of him as a little kid saying, I want to be an explorer. And then the teacher, like listening to the ear thing and then saying, well, why would you want to be an explorer? Everything's been explored. And, you know, they put the dog in place to keep him from venturing out. They, of course, the whole narrative with his dad to keep him from venturing out. All these things that were in place to keep him locked in. But this theme that you can't keep a person from becoming who they're meant to be sort of an idea, that just spoke to me in spades 
decades as I watched it. And my confession is I watched it a few hours ago. So it's like really fresh for me that the whole idea and theme of the film. Well, that's I mean, I love that you just watched it and you're, it's fresh in your mind because he's the adventurer, right? Like Truman's the guy who like wants to explore the world and want, like looks at the map and wants to see it all. And I could see like we even did a Indiana Jones episode. If you haven't listened to that, go check it out. But like where we talked about John's love of like exploring the world and seeing it. And that's who Truman is. And then all of a sudden they're like, oh, crap, that's not who you can be. So they do all these things that they plant in his life and his mind and his story to like wreck that person that's inside him. Well, and, and in so many ways, I know we're going to talk about different characters, but the Ed Harris character, in a lot of ways, he picked the wrong kid. Like he picked the kid that had this unquenchable, like, I must go and explore beyond where I am. And everything they did to try to keep him back ultimately didn't work. It's a great story. Personally, I love the movie. I love the setup. It's one of those movies. And we, as filmmakers, I think we all have certain movies that we would say, I wish I would have made that. Like, what a great plot device. I just think that the idea behind that, building that story would have been a blast writing that script. So anyway. Well, one thing that stood out to me was like Roger Ebert wrote a review and he saw this movie without knowing what the conceit was. So he thought it was like a parody of like Leave it to Beaver and something like that. And then he realized like, Oh, no, like 20 minutes into the movie. Oh, this is actually a movie about his whole life being a TV show. And he didn't even know that was the case. And so I was like, how powerful that would be to like not have seen a preview or anything else and just kind of walk in cold to this movie. Andrew, what about you? How'd you feel watching it? Uh, the first time I saw this movie was in college. And I remember loving it with the conceit of like real life being a story. And, you know, how how much does the story of your life mean to other people and that kind of thing. I found it really interesting. When I rewatched it for this podcast, I'm not on the same page as you guys. I was actually really, not really disappointed, but like kind of disappointed. I did not think it held up. So, so I got to dig into this. So was there a certain moment where you're like, oh, this isn't working. Like what's going on? Or was it just an overall like washing over you? I think... Like what you were just saying about like being able to watch it, not knowing the conceit. I feel like that is the best way to watch this movie. And I knew what the conceit was the first time I watched it. But I feel like it didn't hold up on a rewatch because so much of it is built around the idea of him like discovering what the world is. And once you know what the world is, then it's kind of like, yeah, man, you're in a TV show. There's little moments of diving into like what the TV show means for the people who are or watching it and why people are obsessed with watching someone else's life. There's like little cutaways of meaning, like when he's having an argument with his wife or even that, that conversation where he's sitting there with his best friend trying to figure out if his life is fake. But it feels like it stays pretty surface level on is my life fake or not versus really diving into what does it mean to live a, a real life and why is that meaningful? Um, and I thought it went deeper and went on a rewatch. I was like, oh, it kind of doesn't. It just kind of stays in this like cat and mouse thing for most of the movie. And I found that less interesting than I thought I would. I mean, it's interesting because of what I feel like your criticism is, is like like something like The Sixth Sense or something like Unusual Suspects. Like once I know what the twist is, it doesn't like work as well. Um, but for me, I actually did find so much meaning. And, and I think like, Truman can't reflect on what's happening to him. So we have to like bring meaning into what's happening to him, which is why I thought, oh man, his every move, every message he's receiving, like that was the big thing that stood out to me this time was like 
all these messages flying at him that are trying to get him to act a certain way, be a certain way. Like they're really trying to manipulate his emotions, even the way that they're referring to his life as of story arc like oh the dad story arc that was really painful and they talk about that i just thought that was so interesting and the way they're slicing up his life like that and so it is true that truman can't reflect on it and we have to reflect on like what's happening to him i think rob what what you're saying about like truman can't reflect and i think that would be cheap if we have all these cutaways of him having to like explain what he's feeling and actually reflect on that because you're right that is the audience's job right but it felt like we were in the same period of stasis of him discovering that his life was fake versus the effect of what that meant for him as a human being of that his life was being put in this box. Not just that, that he was in a TV show, but what does it mean to be basically a captive within your own life because of your environment? He spends the whole movie saying, like, I want to break free. I want to break free. And then we don't really see the moment where that shifts for him like he gets pulled back from the nuclear plant and then next thing we know he's in the boat and I feel like I missed a big chunk of him like committing to this new thing and maybe that's what was happening the whole movie but it felt like we were just kind of stuck in that him figuring it out for like a really long time and I wanted something more I wanted it I wanted more character out of him I guess. Well, let's let's get into this in the categories, because I think we can really litigate this in the categories. And so let's actually talk about what was the most meaningful scene in the movie. Well, I mean, to me, the most meaningful scene was the final scene when the boat hits the cyclorama and he realizes what's going on. And you hear, you know, Ed Harris's. uh, Hang on a second. Did you use the word cyclorama? It's like the big, it's like the big uh, psych wall, the big psych wall that's behind him. <laughs> Stop it. And, uh, and, uh, and he Just has, casual use of cyclorama. Like it's no big deal. I yeah, told right, you, John you know, is famous. You know, the big Stop cyclorama. It. Yeah. Uh-huh. So, but that, this is kind of that virtual horizon. The boat hits that. He stops. It pauses. You know, we get Kristoff, Ed Harris's character being voice of God. And that moment to me, that monologue that Ed Harris has there, that's the moment. And then, of course, Jim Carrey's response with his classic line from the movie. That, that for me, was the, the most important moment of the film. What do you think Ed Harris is in that moment, John? Like, what does he symbolize? Like, is it God? Is it the creator? Is it the, the voice of the oppressor? Like, like, what do you think Ed Harris is to Jim Carrey in that moment? I think it's the voice of fear. Over and over again, there's this theme that fear is what keeps us locked in. And he's sort of that voice of whatever it is that's going to keep us from going beyond, from taking the risk, from taking the leap, from, from doing the thing that is, is uncomfortable. I mean, numerous times they said that, you know, he's much safer there than he is in this real world. And, and so I think that to me is, the, is what Ed Harris is. He symbolizes that. Can we give a shout out to Ed Harris's performance oh, man. in that scene, right? I mean, the whole movie, but like that scene in particular... I think is a really powerful performance. Well, I know well, Andrew and what's, doesn't he, think so and thinks it's garbage, but like no, I, I think Ed, <laughs> Ed Harris is fantastic in this movie. Well, and well, to be clear, I don't think it's garbage. I think I thought this movie was just so much better than it actually was. Well, and for Ed Harris to be for, for him to be the antagonist, and he it's so well played and such a layered, nuanced character that you really feel the love that he has for this character you feel almost this like he thinks he's the father he really does i mean essentially this is an unwanted baby that he as his company but he adopts 
and has in his own in his mind he's nurtured this baby it's like in, in a lot of ways the picture of a of like this perfect sociopath that like really believes that everything he's doing is for this person's benefit but the person themselves is saying no it's not going to happen i mean we talked in the don't look up episode about like tech billionaires and that sort of idea and i got that feel from ed harris as well of like this is almost like a elon musk type of character who really believes like no you are safe here you are safe in my world and it's this weird performance that's like really loving and nurturing and then it's also like i was there i was there with your first steps i was there when you're born you're safe in my world and if you go out in the real world you're not safe anymore and that like love slash abusiveness just makes that scene pop he has this line where when jim carrey is about to leave and walk through the door and his like the final thing that ed harris says to try to turn him around is he says like all of the things that we use to manipulate you in here exist out there, too. Like, this world might be fake, but it's better. And then Jim Carrey's answer to that is, like, basically by leaving is, I don't care if it's more dangerous, I want what's real. And I don't have a good answer to this, but it feels like at the end of the 90s, we were fascinated as a society by the idea of a fake reality versus a real reality. Like, we saw the digital mess that is in our lives coming because like that moment feels incredibly close to like the whole thematic plot of the matrix which came out like two years later one year later so matrix comes out one year later and there's all these other movies that have been forgotten like the net with sandra bullock and disclosure with michael douglas and there's all these weird like the internet is coming and it's evil and you're going to be controlled that's really true andrew movies that were made and that theme comes up over and over and over again it doesn't matter if the fake world is safer or like more comfortable. I want what's real. And it's interesting how 20, 20, 25 years later, that has not come to be. It very much feels like we are drifting towards a society in which, you know, there is less of a dividing line between a virtual reality or a meta reality and our own reality and that they are blurred together and that people don't really care about that. Whereas these stories in the late 90s were really like the heroes were like, it doesn't matter how hard it is. I want the real thing. Right, right. It definitely does deal with the ethics. So, Andrew, what about you? What was your most meaningful scene? Uh, I think the most meaningful scene for me was when he's on the deck and he's he's talking to his uh, best friend. Is that is that the like, moment when he says, you would never lie to me? And he says, no, yeah, I would never lie to you. Yeah, he says, yeah. And I think that to me was like, just, I guess, emotionally poignant of him as an actor trying to tell this story and trying to do what he thinks is right, or at least do his job of fully saying like, I would never lie to you. If if this whole thing, you know, if this whole thing is a conspiracy, then I have to be in on it and I'm not in on it. And he sells that line so well. Like, like what's so great is Ed Harris is like giving him the lines and you're seeing Ed Harris say it flat and then you're seeing the actor perform it. Right. And you are seeing this like director actor relationship of those two and it really pays off in that scene. And that was the kind of performance that his best friend was was giving in that moment was like, my heart is on the line. I'm here for you. We're in this together. And then to know how like fake it was, it was kind of like the deepest to me that the manipulation went. And the whole thing is about manipulation. But that moment of two people like deeply connecting and then realizing that it's all fake to me was kind of the most emotionally sad moment of the film in 
situations where he's being emotionally manipulated the whole film that to me was the one that grabbed me the most so what about this let's flip it on its head now what what was the least meaningful scene so the extended sequence of when he starts to like see things going wrong so i feel like the the sequence right after he hears the radio broadcast of like the first ad talking to the extras everything that kind of followed that it felt it felt too drug out to me let me say something about this because here's my thing is like what drove me crazy which may have been along the lines with you was like how sloppy things were like they played it for gags so often like when it rains on just him and then it rains everywhere. Like, that's a great gag. Yes. And then, like, but then he goes into, like, the bank, and then, like, craft services is back there, and all the people are back there, and he's trying to go in the elevator, and he's like, what's going on here? And then the light falls from the sky, and then the radio's on. And what I was thinking watching it was, like, there is no way they made it 30 years if they are this sloppy. Like, there were just too many sloppy things which right. were played for gags. But I was like, there's no freaking way, dude, that they're making it 30 years if they keep messing up over and over and over again. Right. And I think what they were trying to do is the idea of, like, because he heard the radio broadcast, is he started to deviate from his routine and that he was controlled enough in the way that they had set everything up that they could basically predict where he would be at any given time. And so when he deviated from his routine, when he left work and didn't go through the rotating doors, then no one was really set up to be able to respond to that. But I feel like there was just a better version of that scene, whether it's a, a chase sequence or, you know, something more like the Matrix where like they have to like drug him and he wakes up in his bed and he thinks it was all a dream. There's there's like better versions of it versus him like just being like, oh, that was strange. And then going back to work. For me, I didn't have a problem with any of it. I thought it was really fun to see the mechanics of it. It was just it happening so frequently that yeah. I was like, I was like, there's no way. I, what do you think, John? You know, I actually like the fun and games of the realization of the world he's in and then him finding a way out. So I, I liked all that. For me, the the least meaningful part of the movie actually was reintroducing his his dad as an extra because I thought that that lost some of the power of the final sequence in the boat. Because with it, with his dad dying in the water, that would have made that final scene, I think, more emotionally compelling. But bringing his dad back as an extra, and then that scene of him meeting his dad, and uh, that just didn't that didn't that didn't hold up for me as strong of a of an ending as if his dad would have actually died in the water. Because in other words, his dad not dying in the water makes the water not as not as frightening. It makes that scene not as compelling. It makes that not as much of a thing to overcome. I totally agree. And the other thing that it does is like, <laughs> they have this really emotional scene. They're both having the beers. And he's like, actually, your dad's right here in the dock. And it just like turns around. And I was like, <laughs> exactly. That's why be- I brought you here. <laughs> the best scene in the movie is like followed by the worst scene in the movie. And I was like, I was like, it totally cheapens that. line. Yes, that's exactly what I thought. One of the things though that I think that scene is doing is it shows how Ed Harris's character is losing control. And everything that he's done so far is like allegedly like these genius moves. And to me, what you just said there, John, of like, it actually makes that final scene less compelling because it gives him a reason to fear the water less. I would have loved if they had like had him 
make that realization somehow on screen, right? That that the fact that all of these dominoes start to fall actually start to spur him forward, which it is doing, but like we miss the moment where he really makes a decision, where he gets in the boat and starts going. We don't see that decision. It just gets made off screen. Like, that is th- a good note. Yeah. And the reason that that happens off screen is because they're choosing perspectives, right? Right. Because what they're actually doing is they're giving you the shock of like, looking all the way through the town and where is he, where is he? And then it leads to that big moment, which is cue the sun, which is such a great line and a great visual gag. But because they're spending time in that perspective, they can't spend time in Truman's perspective of him getting to the boat and looking at the water and do I go in and do I not? When we see Ed Harris's in his friend's ear, it almost switches to Ed Harris's perspective at that point for the rest of the movie. It is kind of a point of view shift, which is interesting, and it makes Ed Harris a really compelling character for the rest of the movie. But it does, I feel like, maybe cheapen a little bit your connection with with Truman. But Ed Harris, he is answering one of the, like the interviewer is like giving him a question and he's like, you know, asking him all these things. And Ed Harris is presented as this like really smart, like writer, creator of this TV show. Right. And he goes like. How are you going to explain like the reemergence of his dad and where has it all been? And we're waiting for this like grand answer of this like architect who's created this master stroke of, you know, a story. And Ed Harris just goes, oh, amnesia, which is like the worst possible. It's, it's, it's like the cheapest, most soap opera answer. And to me, it was this moment of like he's losing control. If the best option they have is to reintroduce his dad and explain it away with amnesia, like this thing is crumbling. Right. Like I saw that on season two of General Hospital where it was like, okay, we know the amnesia plot. Right. You're like, oh, that's a bad answer. And and I I guess at that point, I wish that they had like done more with that or like we could have seen Jim Carrey's response to those things and him like wrestling with it. But we lose his perspective at that point. And I think that's when I really wanted to hone in on his perspective. I don't know. It's to be fair. I'm like really like bagging on this movie. It's a good movie. I just think I expected to like it more than I did. Okay. So I want to get into some questions about the Truman show itself, like really nitpicks about like, okay, how does this all work? So first question is this, what does Laura Linney do during the day? (laughs) Like, like, so she goes, she's married to Truman. She brings like groceries home. She shops the knife like, Hey, but Laura Linney, and we haven't talked about her much. She does this great job. She's always kicking out to the camera and talking about the knife, talking about, Oh, I got your favorite kind of cocoa. Like she, she's so great. Which by the way, I I love the product placement gags were so much fun in there. Just the, she's giving the spiel and he's like, what are you doing? Like that is my favorite line of the movie where he goes, who are you talking to? And like, looks around, like, I love that moment. I remember that even from 10 years ago, as I was watching the scene, I was like, Oh, I think this is my favorite moment of the film. And the camera works so great, right? Like it like whip zooms, like a Martin's Scorsese shot into the knives or whip zooms like into the hot cocoa the lawnmower this is like, or whatever yeah. it is yeah it's like so great but okay so what does laura lenny do she like five o'clock she gets home she's with truman i'm not sure like what they do at night like if they're consummating this marriage like that's a whole other ethical like thing we could get into they seem to imply that they do because of like the guards that are like watching it they're always like, oh, you, you don't, we, we ever, don't see anything. You don't ever yeah. see anything. They always like pan over. But it seems like, yeah, I was thinking that, too. I was like, this seems ethically ambiguous. But her character is presented as like, there is no difference between my life and the show. Like at the very beginning, she seems like actress over the edge. So you feel like eh, she'd probably do whatever. What's so interesting, the first five minutes of this movie is incredible because it almost starts with like a making of where it's like a talking like 
Laura Lenny's explaining her character thing, which is like, Truman Show is not just a job, it's a calling, it's a way of life. And so you see that's her perspective. But still, I'm I'll, like... I'll say this, Rob. I, you know, I've got friends that, that work on, on film. Film is one thing because, you know, on, on most low, mid-budget movies, you're working 12-hour days. It's brutal, right? So that's one thing. Then a TV series, you're talking about 70 or 80 days of shooting, and now this is like a 365 days of shooting. Like, it would be crazy. Like, I can't even imagine the kind of scale you would need for your crew and your actors. And I mean, 24 hours a day shooting, it just seems untenable and crazy, but, but fun to imagine. Like, do you think she has like a husband offset or she goes out in New York nightlife she on the weekends? Because you, you can't leave the set. So you, does she ever get to go home? Well, I think I think her time off is during the day. Like oh, I don't think work. she I don't think she goes to work. I think her her work day, her her call time is five PM through like seven AM and then she's off in the middle of the day. Which right, by the way, think... wasn't that a great scene in the hospital where the guy had to amputate the leg and he's like, uh I that that was <laughs> that amazing. Was great. I, I love I love I guess I wanted more of that. I wanted Truman right up against it more often. And the uh, doctor the doctor was, was just like the doctor was like, uh scalpel please uh, and the patient's like freaking out. It was a great scene. I love that scene. So do you think like Truman leaves? Do you think there's season two of the Truman show? Do you think they like reboot this and do this again? Like in the world of the Truman show? Yes, I think they do it, but obviously not with Truman. I think he has a whole a whole problem for the rest of his life. But I think I think they do it again 10 years later but they do it survivor style on an island where they're raising a baby in like an enclosed environment where they get to tell him what the world is. I think their mistake was trying to make it too much like the real world. That's what I thought. I was like, why are there buses? Why are there cars? Why are there airplanes? You can make the world whatever they want. Like, right. hey, buses have never been invented. In fact, here's my pitch for Truman Show season two. Are you ready? Let's go. It is set in the time of like Game of Thrones or Westerns where all there are, there's no cars, there's just horses, there's people kind of like, you know, maybe riding around on buggies or whatever else, but there's no boats, there's no uh, anything else like that. There's just, you have to walk everywhere and you could build a set long enough. It's like, it's like Westworld, but where the char- where the main character doesn't know they're in that world. Right, and it's and I like your pitch of an island, Andrew. But I'm like, there's no cars, there's no anything. You can still have like nice houses and that sort of stuff. Electricity could be invented. You you can kind of like cheat whatever the rules of science are. But in this universe, there's no cars, there's no boats, there's no buses, there's no transportation to where you can ever get out. Yeah, I think I think that's it. And then the other thing that I think is like a huge missed opportunity is you you need to put cameras in the world as just like. A thing that is there and they're not cameras right that like you you teach him that like cameras are like wildlife or something right like that you just say like cameras are just like a natural occurring thing in our environment and if it's set in pre-modern times then you just like move on and go with that if i don't ever see a movie if i don't see the result of something being recorded then i have no reason to believe that a camera is anything other than a weird thing on a stick, right? So you're saying like, hey, son, here's a horse. Here's a flower. Here's a camera. It's not real. 
We're gonna have to workshop this. I don't. I don't I think, know if that. <laughs> I think the two of you are horrible, evil masterminds. Like I. Yeah, I think it's. I think it's called like the Truman Show, BC. Okay. Final question of our crazy categories: What happens to Truman when he gets into the real world? Does he just need a lot of therapy? Is he freaking out all the time? Like, is his mind exploding? Like, what happens to him? That's a great question. What happens to Truman when he walks through the door? Essentially. Which is why they don't show any of that, because they want us to have this conversation. So obviously he finds the girl. I mean, I'm the romantic, right? So he finds the girl. Yeah, he's got a he's got a major adjustment that has to happen now because life is not as cut and dried as however old how old is he in this movie? Is he is early he's 30s? thirty? Okay. He's so thirty. He's thirty years old, so clearly life is not is not as easy or as comfortable or as safe as it is in this world. So yeah, I think he's got a major adjustment, probably lots of therapy. Um, but I think he finds the girl and I think he he begins to experience real life. I mean, that's that's the story, right? I think that's the story that is the nicest and the one that has the most hope in it. I think here's Andrew for you, everybody. Oh, man, like <laughs> I'm going to print I, a T-shirt that just says Andrew needs a hug. And it's <laughs> we're going to sell it on the store. It's going to be great. I feel like, John, you're like, that's why they end it there so that you can imagine all the great things that happen afterwards. I think they end it there because it's all downhill when he walks through the door. <laughs> like, and, and that's not what I want. Like, Truman seems like such a great guy. But I think it's like. So, so you think he should have should he have stayed there? Definitely not. But I think he's hosed. Like the thing that he's that he's like pining over, the thing that's given him hope is the fact that he had this true, honest love inspiration in high school. But it was two days. He saw this girl at the dance. He saw her the next day at school. They ran off to the beach for five minutes and that's it. And he spent the next 15 years of his life imagining who this girl is. And it doesn't matter how great she actually is. She's not that thing. He's made her to be like the perfect woman in his brain. And this is me like way reading into it. And the whole point that the movie was creating with this character was that there is hope outside, that he has a longing and that there is something real and something true. And that's represented by this girl. And that is actually really great and nice. But if you put it in reality, like it doesn't matter who she is in real life. She's not going to be the idea that he had and the idea that he's been in love with for 15 years. And he is not going to be the person that she's watched on TV for the last 15 years. So there's no way that it works. They meet and there's absolutely no way that it works. And stop, then stop, he stop, has stop, no stop. one. I disagree. I actually think there's a really great chance for them to work because she's going to treat him like a normal person. And he's going to feel what that feels like of like, oh, my wife isn't an actress. She's not being paid. She just cares about who I am. And so I think their relationship's fine. But I think, Andrew, you're right that he's hosed because he's going to go to Times Square and everyone's taking like cell phone pictures of him. He's going to be the most famous person in the world. And it's just going to be like too much to realize like, oh, my gosh, everywhere I know those people watched me go to the bathroom. Those people watch me eat breakfast. Like, what does that do to your brain when you realize like you've been under the microscope like that? He needs a safety net. And I think they're trying to provide that with the idea that there's this girl waiting for him. And I think there is debate as to whether or not that works. But that is the thing that to me is the most sad of like when he leaves, like he has no family. He has no one who is unconditionally going to like be there for him to like be that human safety net that we all need when we hit rock bottom. And that to me is the most terrifying thing of him walking out into that void is that there is no safety net. 
and he, that he will deeply emotionally need someone who is like there for him unconditionally and the fact that he probably doesn't have that john your response <laughs> well that's a great uh, uplifting view of life andrew uh, actually where my brain was going right in that moment was it's interesting how in the movie we don't see the dark side of uh, Jim Carrey's character. We see a pretty happy-go-lucky guy who smiles at everyone. The whole world's cheering for him. And I don't know that any of us are that good of people in our in our dark moments. Like, I think that if we were to see the behind-the-scenes camera angles of all of our lives, I think we would see a different picture of us. You know, would the whole world share for me if they saw my whole life? Uh, warts and all, I'm not sure that the whole world would be cheering for my every decision, my every moment. And I want to get to my next category, which is, um, what's the most meaningful character? And I actually had John, the audience, was the most meaningful character to me because that's what makes it work. We talked about don't look up and don't look up. There's these normal people who kind of ground it. And that's what they kept having to remind us of like, not only people are watching it, but the way we watch, right? Like some people, one guy is watching it in a bathtub just by himself. And it's just like, okay, this is my bath time routine. Another old lady's actually like fall asleep and, and reminding me of my grandma, like falling asleep, watching Price is Right and watching Wheel of Fortune. And that's what it is to her. Other people are watching it in a bar. And the way that we can take the same piece of media, but how we consume it is really important. And that movie delved into this idea in an interesting way. What about you guys? What was your most interesting character? Well, the most meaningful character outside of Jim Carrey's character, of course, uh, would have been Ed Harris, just because I think his performance was so phenomenal and the way that he's the architect of this world. He's the sort of the driver of, of the whole thing, especially at the end when, they're, when Paul's like, I'm not doing it. I can't do it. I'm, I'm not going to make it happen. And then Ed Harris comes in and he's willing to actually literally play God. You know, he's asking everyone else to move the dials for him. At the end of the day, the, his team is like, I, I, now it's beyond the, the barrier of morality and Ed Harris himself comes in and, and moves the dials, you know. Well, like it has my favorite line in the movie, which is like, he's going to die on TV. And Ed Harris says, well, what's the problem with that? He was he born, was born on, on TV. Oh, yeah. It was. I do think that this movie has a very interesting relationship with the idea of God. I think that Ed Harris's character is a very not veiled analog for God and the idea of a creator who is in place running our lives. And it feels like the movie is very antagonistic to that idea and I guess the idea of fate or the idea of a of a creator or the idea of the idea of a creator you know what I took away from that was like it's against when corporations play god so like it's very intentional like this is a corporation there are sponsors like when everything's breaking down one of the hmm. first conversations that happens is like the sponsors are going to be so upset and he's like why we've got more than ever and so it's this sort of idea of like when corporations play God, when corporations really start like crossing the line of creator and caregiver, like that's too far and that's really dark. Well, I don't know, Rob, if the filmmakers were trying to do this, but it might also be a commentary on organized religion. And of course, you guys know me. I mean, I'm uh, I'm sort of a religious type guy, I guess. I wouldn't maybe use that word religious, but certainly I'm a, a person of faith. Um, but I do think that there's a little bit of a commentary there on sometimes that organized religion uses fear as a mechanism to sort of keep things boxed in in a safe in a safe container and maybe there's a, a commentary there about how there's something beyond that and that's what i was kind of feeling is it felt like this this movie about living your best life and then 
it would take these turns into what felt like a commentary against organized religion. But I really like what you just said, Rob, about the idea of it's corporations playing God. That's a really interesting take on that that feels much more in line with the other themes of the movie. Yeah, because like you said, Ed Harris is really human. Like it's like, oh, he's this grandmaster, but he's not, you know, and I think it's very much like you're not as in control as you think you are. This guy is like slipping control and you can't just wield this the way you think you should. Mm, that's good. Yep. Um, quick sidebar. Do you think this movie should have been nominated for Best Picture? You ready for the Best Picture nominees of 1998? Yeah, let's go. So Shakespeare in Love, which wins famously. Elizabeth, Life is Beautiful, Saving Private Ryan, and The Thin Red Line. Those are our nominees. This is the year, one of the most famous Oscar years, where Shakespeare in Love beats Saving Private Ryan. We're not going to litigate that right now. I just want to <laughs> say this right here. Should Truman Show have cracked that top five? John, what do you think? No, I, I don't. I don't. It doesn't seem like an Oscar type film to me uh, necessarily. So I, as much as I love the Truman Show, I don't. I don't know that it belongs in those in that category of the top five. But boy, Saving Private Ryan was a great. Was a great. <laughs> and his life is beautiful. I've never seen Elizabeth, um, but I've seen the other four. And uh, it's interesting how many uh, World War II movies, three of the five were World War II movies in that year. So uh, we certainly had something on our mind. But Life is Beautiful, Saving Private Ryan are fantastic. Thin Red Line is uh, kind of a whole thing. Um, Here's the thing. When was the last Elizabeth conversation that you had? When was the last time you're like, oh, okay, I really like this? <laughs> like, get Elizabeth out of there. You guys are tripping. Get Elizabeth out of there. Put Truman Show in there. It belongs in it. Yeah, I, I think you might be right about that, Rob. I, I'm going to reverse my decision on Truman Show. I put it in there, certainly up against Elizabeth any day. And I would probably put it against Thin Red Line, too. I, I mean, that movie is sort of bonkers. It's this weird, like, ethereal mess. Well, especially if you're talking about films that have stood the test of time and that right. are still in the zeitgeist of our culture we're talking about like Truman show is there. It's even become a sort of metaphor for this idea. So yeah, I think it's, I think it deserves a place there somewhere. Elizabeth can get out and put in Truman show for me. Okay. So this is our final category. This is a bonus category, which is if you like the Truman show, you might also like John, what do you got? I would say it would be the secret life of Walter Mitty. That, that movie does the same thing of, of letting us know there is something else out there and what it's like to... Now, in this case, in Walter Mitty, he actually goes and explores beyond the door. So this gives us kind of part two of the Truman Show. What happens when you step through the door? Andrew, what do you got? I would say Pleasantville is uh, a movie about sort of uh, breaking outside of the comfort of a 50s style society, very similar to what they created for The Truman Show. Um, it's a great movie about like rediscovering passion in your life and doing things that maybe aren't safe, but bring your life a lot more more meaning. And there's a variation of characters and what that means to them. I love that you bought, brought up Pleasantville. I thought about that a bunch watching this movie. And maybe we'll do that sometime in the future. Um, my number one that I would say is Network. Uh, this is a movie that we will for sure do. I adore this movie, but Truman Show is a satire, and I think that's important to realize. And so Network is very much in the same vein, a movie about the creation of TV and its impact on us. And the other thing that I want to flag is you might also like Peter Weir, the director of this movie. I mentioned him earlier, but he's this lesser known He's not Scorsese, he's not the Coen brothers, but he's got this great filmography of The Truman Show, Dead Poet Society, Master and Commander of the Far Side of the World, 
Witness with Harrison Ford, Mosquito Coast. He's got Fearless, Jeff Bridges, this great filmography, Australian film director. And if you haven't seen all of his movies, check them out. He does solid, solid work. Okay, we're running out of time, guys, so we got to get to it. This is your final argument. What is the meaning of the movie? Andrew, I'm going to you. What's the meaning of the movie The Truman Show? I think the meaning of the movie is all about getting outside of the walls that confine you in your life and living the life you want to live and, um, you know, being being the hero of your own life and not letting other people write your own story. Um, I, I think uh, there's other movies out there that do it a lot more poetically uh, than this. Uh, but uh, the idea of don't um, don't let someone else write your story, write your own story. And it's a, a fun little uh, hijinksy movie along the way. I think. Probably the reason this movie resonated with me so much more is I don't think that's the main meaning of the movie for me. What I think this is, is a movie about entertainment, how we create it, how we consume it, how we produce it, how it's put all together. The very last line in the movie is the two security guards sitting there and the screen goes blank and they say, what's next? And that's these people who have been watching this show for 30 years, every single week. It's part of their life. The second it's over, it's like, boom, what's next? This is foreshadowing binging. This is foreshadowing all that sort of idea. And so to me, that's what's so smart about it is this is all about the way that we consume entertainment and all about the way that entertainment is going to start blurring the line between reality and fiction. You know, like that's what this movie is most concerned with. I don't know. I think that the meaning of the movie is overcoming your fear and and stepping into the unknown. And hopefully our audience that's watching would say, hey, you know what? I've got my own fear that's kept me in. I think in our own way, we all live in our own version of this. What's the name of this town here? Uh, sea Haven. Sea Haven. I think we all live in our own sort of Sea Haven. And if we can be motivated, inspired, or challenged by The Truman Show to say, in what ways am I? have I been content to live in Sea Haven? And what does it look like to actually consider what's beyond? What is our Fiji? What is that thing that we have spent 30 years saying maybe, but maybe not now because my fear is keeping me from stepping across or stepping into the boat or, or walking through the door? Like, let's step through there. Let's step onto the boat. Let's open the door. Let's see what it would be like to actually explore beyond. So I would say, let's do that. But at the same time, boy, it is a fascinating prophetic commentary on entertainment and where we all are today. In so many ways, we're living in Sea Haven, and a lot of us don't even know it. Did you hear that sound? That was the sound of John Bullen smoothly landing the plane of the episode. What a great last comment. Beautiful. Uh, fellas, good job. That was a fun episode. Thanks for your dialogue. Andrew, you know we love you. <laughs> One of these days, I won't be the odd man out in this conversation between the three of us. <laughs> yeah, I'll, t- I'll be hot take Rob next episode. So whatever it is, I'll just have the crazy take that like, oh no, <laughs> Casablanca's overrated or whatever. Like that'll, that'll be me. But <laughs> that's it. That's all we have time for, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you so much for listening. We will see you next time on our episode of... The meaning of the movie.